Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and excited to have you join me for another enlightening leadership conversation. But before we go there, I want to share some exciting news. Uh, Our firm, PMA Nonprofit Leadership, is about to celebrate its 15th anniversary. If you're listening to this episode in February of 2024, it is technically on the 11th day of this month. And so you're going to see more about that in our various social media and newsletter channels. Um, and as part of the celebration, we're also launching a brand new website. Check it out, pmanonprofit.com. That is pmanonprofit.com. And in addition to the anniversary celebrations, this podcast is about to hit another milestone. It is episode number 250. That is just two weeks away, and I'm excited about some reformatting and rebranding we're going to do around it as we get ready for the next 250 episodes of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. Now, as we get ready for the 250th episode, we got some wonderful conversations before we arrive at that milestone. And this episode is number 248. We explore the importance of building social capital as a nonprofit leader, and we've got the perfect person to talk about it. She is a relationship expert and bridge builder. Her name is Dr. Francois Booker-Drew. Now, Francois advocates that improving the way we interact, collaborate, and cooperate can not only lead to significant positive change within our organizations and communities, it will strengthen your leadership. And she's going to give you ideas, including how to develop your personal board of directors, how to seek positive mentors. By the way, what's the difference between your personal board and mentors? and how you can better make the connections in your community you need to to enhance your leadership and make your nonprofit more successful. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Francois Booker-Drew. Francois, thank you for joining me on The Path. Patton, I am so excited to be here with you. Thank you for having me today. Well, I am delighted to be with you. We've had some great conversations in advance of this episode, and you've got some wonderful things to share, given your experience and the work you do with leaders at all stages of nonprofit leadership, especially as it relates to social capital. So we're going to dive into that, understand what it is, and of course, our listeners are going to benefit from building social capital. And let me start with that question. What is the biggest challenge you see nonprofit leaders, especially leaders of color, as they try to build social capital? You know, I think for so many nonprofit leaders, it's the busyness. I think especially for smaller grassroots nonprofits, they are so busy doing the fundraising and they are trying to do programs and get things to funders. And all of that keeps them so siloed to where they really don't make the space to be able to connect to others. And I remember recently there was this amazing conference here and I'd invited all these nonprofit leaders and I kept hearing, I'm too busy to come. And my response is, you are not busy enough if you don't come to this, because this is the thing that will get you the relationships that will get you access to all the things that you need. You can't be that busy to miss out on this opportunity. And so that's what I see it being bad. And is that 
they're not making the space to connect. And that's critical to grow your nonprofit. Such a good point. And you and I both know it. it's it's hard not to just focus kind of head down, get through tomorrow, get through next week. Yes. But as we build individually and organizationally, we have to look ahead with the social capital. And let me ask you that, Francois, what defines social capital? Uh, for We hear that phrase a lot, but you are the one who can probably best explain <laughs> what it is. Well, you know, social capital is a term that was coined in the early 1900s by a gentleman named Hannafin, who saw some parents talking and they were sharing resources. And he said, they're sharing social capital. And the term has gone through a number of iterations. You'll see it in different industries where it's in economics or urban planning, but the current most you know, father of it, as people would probably say, is Robert Putnam. And he wrote a book in, uh, in 2000 called Bowling Alone. And what he talks about is social capital is really about relationships. Right. It's about networks, it's about associations. And we don't see our relationships as a form of currency, as a form of wealth. We focus so much on the financial capital piece that we don't recognize that for everything that we do, it is about these relationships that move the needle. And I often tell you know my nonprofits that I'm working with is that your issue is not a money issue. Your issue is a relationship issue. And yes. so helping them understand the power of building their social capital and that it's not about just the transaction. It's about building these relationships that can be transformative, not only for you professional, but for you personally. And that's what social capital really is, is about how do we use relationships to move the needle to make things happen? Yep. Excellent. Thank you for that definition. And it, of course, will lead to other topics that we're going to unpack. But before we do that, talk about your journey. What type of experiences would you highlight that led you to the work you're doing now? You know, Patton, I did not expect to be in nonprofit management. Um, my dream as a kid was to be a medical doctor. And when I saw blood, that kind of stopped that dream altogether. <laughs> and, and then I said, well, I will go into something like microbiology. And the fact that I could not master algebra and uh, the other stuff, I went, you know, maybe it's something with people. Yes. And so when I went to college, I thought it was going to be um, that I would become an attorney because I was so interested in justice and helping people with their rights. And I remember going to a conference and seeing, you know, um, some young people, we were actually in the, the library for a conference and trying to get research. And they were like, you don't want to be a law student. Look at how, you know, much work this is. We're here on a Saturday. And I was like, yeah, I don't want that. But what really started it was in college, um, volunteering. And I got a chance nice. very early to work with Girl Scouts yep. and to be able to start building my career in program management and direct services. You know, so it went through the, the program delivery. I did case management. And then finally, I got into administration. And so I moved up from doing local nonprofits to being in national nonprofits to ultimately working at World Vision and starting off locally with World Vision to becoming National Community Engagement Director. And from there, I moved into the funding space. I always wanted to do philanthropy, but it was so difficult to get in. Those are coveted roles. And so I was very fortunate 
to be able to get a position that allowed me to not only develop programs, but to use a budget um, from the revenue and give that out into a community that was very neglected. And it yeah. taught me a lot about both the capacity building pieces of, you know, nonprofits need money to, to do their work, but they also need infrastructure money. And it really changed the way that I saw philanthropy and what was needed. And so now I'm doing consulting using all of those experiences from being in nonprofit management and, and education as well. I teach at Tulane, but also, you know, the philanthropy piece and being able to bring a lens to what's needed for relationships between funders and between nonprofits because of what I experienced. Well, and, and clearly your experience has shaped you in a wonderful way. Uh, you're highly accomplished Thanks. and clearly a relationship builder. So did you see early on, was it in fact social capital or relationship building that you think helped guide you? Or or was it the challenges, frankly, of not having the social capital you deserved, but you made it anyway? I think it's a combination of both. I think it was, I desired to have people that were in positions, open doors, and I didn't have access to them, or right. they weren't as available as I needed them to be. But then I didn't realize that along the way, these relationships that I had, especially in college, that these relationships would serve as a foundation for my career, that the people in student activities and you know some of the, the um, volunteering that I was able to do in community that I was actually building a network and didn't realize it. And the beautiful thing is many of those people, you know, that I had relationships with 30 years ago, they're still in my life today. That's fantastic. And so it's, it, and I'm one of those that I'm like, when you're in my life, you're, you're in it. You, you have to decide to let go because I don't let you go. But it was those <laughs> experiences that really helped me to see the value of relationships. I didn't have the language for it to call it social capital, but I knew it was important. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I think it is also translated into, I'm counting at least four books, Francois, you have produced and published. And of course, I'm going to encourage our listeners to check them out. But talk about the inspiration to publish and what you've hoped to accomplish through that work. You know, the, the first book actually was, um, and it's it's so funny, I wrote the book before I finished my dissertation. Oh, wow. And, um, and I, I was actually working on the book and then did the dissertation, which is so crazy. But I was doing my research with a group of women, and I wanted these diverse women to think about how they built their networks and yep. that there's such a power in our narratives. And so I created the first book was really this workbook to help women think about their stories and how those stories may be helping them connect to people or actually harming them from having the relationships that they want both personally and professionally. Yep. And, you know, it, it just moved into, you know, these books that initially focused on women to the last book that really has focused on, you know, my experiences in nonprofit management and philanthropy and taking both data and taking my lived experience and, you know, the education and these stories and bringing that all together to write a book that I hope would help people think differently about the way they give. And not just from the standpoint of a foundation, but all of us are philanthropists. So how do we make sure that we are giving in a spirit that doesn't harm people, 
but we really are co-creating with the communities that we want to serve. Yeah, well put. And again, you bring such a positivity to your message and your communication, but I also know you're intentional about trying to dispel some of the myths and the misinterpretations that I think can hurt philanthropy or philanthropy in the way that we think it should be. But talk about the common myths and misinterpretations that you're trying to overcome. I think a lot of the, you know, types of um, causes that we want to support aren't always rooted in data, but often rooted in stereotypes and what we see in the media. It's fascinating that, you know, we really have this idea that there is this huge problem with teen pregnancy. There was a time when that was a problem. But right. when you start looking at single mothers now, data is showing that women who are single mothers typically are a bit older than what we, you know, knew about 10 years ago of folks being 16 and 15 years old. Not to say that doesn't It's a stereotype, happen, isn't it? You're right. It's a stereotype, but right. we are seeing more older women who are single mothers. You know, so that, so that was one of the myths that I wanted to dispel. I also wanted to dispel this myth about people that are incarcerated because I've had a number of friends that were incarcerated and the journeys that many of them have had because of they've served their time, but they still have that label. And so I wanted to prove that even as people are incarcerated, that they are still parenting quite often from behind bars and that you see, you know, that laws are very um, inequitable, especially when you look at people of color. And Indeed. so being able to be aware of how policies and systems can create poverty and that we oftentimes will blame people for their situations and not recognize that it's more convoluted than that. And so I wanted to be able to, to dispel that myth that you have people that are just these horrible people that are in jail. And not to say there aren't people who have, you know, done some heinous crimes, yeah, but there sure. are people that have not been punished fairly, um, that then have problems when they get out. And so how do we, as, as philanthropists, make sure that we're supporting that population as well? Because they don't always get the attention that we see other causes when it comes to cute animals and you know, not to say they don't deserve that, but we exactly. need to make sure that we're equitable and and building a society that's fair and just and that people get a chance to thrive. Is that among your kind of personal missions, I suppose, to you see organizations like that that are underrepresented and frankly underfunded? And is part of that you're helping them better tell their story and, and I, I guess I, back it up with the data that proves it? I hope to do that. That That is my goal because I see organizations like in the Dallas area, there's a group called Miles of Freedom. You know, right. Richard Miles was wrongfully incarcerated and he took his settlement money and started this nonprofit to help other people that have been impacted by incarceration. Those kinds of organizations typically don't get the visibility. And so what I'm hoping is with this book, and it's called Empowering Charity, a new narrative of philanthropy. But what I'm hoping is, is that people will see this data and that they will begin to start seeking out these organizations and telling the story and thinking about not just giving money, because I think we see philanthropy as only giving dollars, but your time and your talent, those are also very important. Even your testimony of being able to talk about these organizations, they need our help. And so how do we amplify the great work that many of these under-resourced organizations are not receiving? 
Yeah. And again, kudos to you for putting it into a wonderful published book. Uh, and we're going to lift it up, of course, in our show notes. And and I, I guess, for so I want to give you a chance again. So the the type of organizations you work with, talk about, again, the work you do through your consulting practice. You know, the, it's also very different. It's interesting how life changes. And this season, what I'm doing in consulting is really helping larger organizations and institutions think about a couple of things. It started off being their community engagement strategies and helping them think about how do they connect to diverse communities and and really exploring the relationship building. But what I discovered was there was often an internal challenge that happened and I needed to help the organization think about how they build community internally, because how do you model something externally when internally there are silos and people aren't talking? So I spent a lot of time as well helping these entities think about what does it mean to build an organization that centers community internally? How do you break down these walls that exist, the lack of trust, and really begin to do this organizational change work that hopefully will implement the organizational culture. So I spent time doing that as well. And then I also help some groups with their philanthropy and thinking about, you know, one of my clients got a huge um, approval from their board and they wanted to know what do we do with this funding? And so I helped them with doing some GIS mapping to make sure that we weren't just looking at the usual suspects, but looking at these smaller grassroots nonprofits and the services that they provided gave them recommendations from, you know, surveys that we did with over 100 plus nonprofits. And then they asked, you know, well, what do we do? And I helped develop their workforce program by using nonprofits to help build this amazing program that is thriving and doing well and graduating people and changing the trajectory of their lives because of this. And so that's a piece of it as well as just really helping people think differently about community again, internally, externally, and then connecting them to other partners and resources that help them do this work so that people's lives are so much better because of it. Fantastic. And I can't help but hear some really impressive math skills, Francois, in your explanation. For someone who didn't like math back in the early undergraduate days, uh, you you seem to have mastered some some data and math skills as you moved along, huh? A little bit. Don't be fooled, Pat. And that 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 it sounds better than it actually is. I have help. <laughs> Indeed. Well, speaking of help, and this is what I love about both the organizational work you're doing, but for a listener right now thinking, all right, I think I understand better what social capital means, and I know I need to work on it. And this is, again, where you have shined for someone like that. In fact, there are three topics I'd like to ask you about and help you know translate into advice. Uh, three ways, it seems to me, you can build social capital. And, and the first is mentors. Now, help, again, a term that is likely familiar, but define, if you would, please, what do you mean by mentors and how does that help someone moving on the path to nonprofit leadership? Excellent question. Mentors are people that give you wisdom. And mentors are people that are in spaces that you want to occupy. I think the challenge that many newer young uh, nonprofit leaders look at are titles. So they want someone who's president. And yes, you may want to occupy that space at some point. And that's important to learn their journey. But you also want to look at people who have characteristics that you want to embody. So for me, you know, 
early in my career, I looked at people for titles, but I recognized later on, I needed people with business acumen because I was going to give away every dollar I earned to help somebody else. And so I started yeah. seeking out people that had those skills that I needed. Public speaking was another. So I wanted to be around people who were excellent communicators. And so don't just focus on what they do, but focus on character, focus on skills, because all of those things shape who we are. And you can be great at something, but not have a personality that people want to work with. So how do you find people that help you if that's a challenge to be one of those holistic individuals so that you're not just focusing on one area of your life? Have you found certain ways to find that type of mentor? In other words, you know, some of us are more extroverted, perhaps comfortable in that outreach, but others are more introverted. So where have you found or how do you advise finding mentors like you describe? A couple of ways. I think online is an excellent way. I think the pandemic really helped a lot of us recognize that you can build relationships and they don't always have to be face to face, although that's the idea. Yeah, How do you point. start having virtual coffees? You know, during the pandemic, I was able to connect with people all over the world to start relationships just by sending notes on LinkedIn and going, I want to learn more about what you do. Or I'd love to talk to you about your organization and setting up a 15, 20 minute virtual coffee. And if we clicked from there, we'd set up another time to continue the conversation. Love so that. there's that opportunity. But then how do you think about professional associations? So are there groups in your community that, you know, the Association of Fundraising Professionals is, is a wonderful group or the Public Relations Society of America? Yeah. How do you begin to start looking at, you know, professional associations and then looking at, you know, things like Meetup? Meetup has some amazing volunteer groups that have come together to serve their communities, you know, all over. So are there opportunities even to join groups where you would meet people so that you can build your network and, you know, hopefully find and identify a potential mentor through those experiences. It's fantastic. Thank you. Great and practical advice, even for someone who maybe is less comfortable in, in a, quote, you know, outgoing sense. Uh, but there is networking. Uh, there are networking opportunities for sure. Um, let's talk about a second concept that you have advocated for. And it's one I love because I've used it as well in our mastermind program. Uh, it, it is the concept of a personal board of directors. Yes. What do you mean by personal board of directors and how do you build one? You know, just as your nonprofit has a board of directors that give guidance to the organization, I think all of us need that in our lives. So those are going to be the people that are mentors but they're going to also be individuals that you may not spend a lot of time with, but you call them for advice. And that doesn't mean that this board gets together quarterly and you stand in the middle of the room and they all have something <laughs> to say about you and what you need to do. It's right. not like that at all. But these are people that you can call on who can speak into your life. You always want to be around people who have wisdom. And so if you can identify those folks who have the lived experience that can speak into your life that you can connect to. And I'll give this example. I would have never gone back for a PhD had it not been for my personal board of directors who said, it's time nice. you need to be doing all of these different things and you're not, and we know your possibility and potential. So we want you to go back to school and do this. You want people who are going to push you and challenge you that serve as coaches, but who will also hold you accountable. And that's what a personal board of directors can do for your life. Yeah. Have you found mentors evolve into board members or has it been a separate 
kind of recruitment process for you? I think many of my mentors have become my personal board of directors. Um, but that has been over the course of time because of investment. Right. So the board of directors doesn't, for me, did not start off initially. It really evolved from these mentors who then started to invest in me at a deeper level. So they even became sponsors where, you know, and I know we'll talk about that, but they started doing more than just the wisdom because of the level of investment that they had in me. And again, these are people that have been in my life, many of them for decades. So I, I would say with the personal board, sometimes you want that to evolve so that you get people who really know you and understand you and have your best interests at heart and want to watch you grow and walk with you through this journey. And that's what my board has done. Yeah, it's a fantastic example. Again, I encourage our listeners to think about, as you have said from the outset, you know, the relationship building can pay off so well. Yes. And you have identified even a third category, and you just referenced or alluded to it. What does a sponsor mean in this context? And how do you find that type of, of relationship? You know, people often assume that mentors are sponsors, and they can be, but they typically are not. Okay. They can, but a sponsor is someone who is saying your name behind closed doors, who's advocating for you and opening doors for you to be in spaces and places that you would typically not have access to. Okay. And so I've had, you know, the folks who have said my name that there there is this one amazing lady who started off as a sponsor and has become more of a mentor even now, but she started saying my name in different spaces and, and these opportunities started coming because it was like, hey, I, I want you to to talk to Francois, she can do this. Those are the kind of people that you need in your life too, because many of us don't have access to, you know, a lot of spaces. I remember a friend asked me, well, Francois, what, what table do you want to be at? And I told her, there are tables I'm unaware of. Yes. A sponsor is aware of those tables and sees your potential and your possibility and says, I need to get you in this room. I need you to be at this table. And so you want people who are going to advocate for you when you're not there so that you can occupy these places that you didn't even know existed. Do you find it, it you are proactive in suggesting where you want to be your name to be registered, so to speak, or I guess you make a good point too. Sometimes it's, it's the tables you don't even know about, but I, I guess talk about how that relationship works and are you counting on them to identify places to lift you up or are you proactively saying, Hey, will you help me here? I think it's both. I think it's having people who know about those places that you're like, I didn't even know that existed. And they are going, this is where you need to be. But I think it's also saying, and, and I do this for a lot of young people. I find myself being a mentor and a sponsor where I'm yes. saying, hey, I need you to be in this space. I'm going to nominate you to serve on this board of directors because I need you to be here. Or this fellowship opportunity is something that you need. I'm going to recommend you for that. So I think it's doing, you know, the the identifying but i think you also have to take it a step further and go how do i do that for others this has to be an ecosystem that we're creating nice. non-profit space where we are making spaces for people so that it gets larger and more people can participate and give their perspectives so that things can change we can't just have the same people you know and when we talk about social capital many of us do this thing called bonding 
which is a form of social capital, which is connecting to people that are just like us. What we've got to move to is this ideal of bridging. How do we connect to people that are very different? Race is one of those elements, but ideology is another one that's impacting us as a country because we're not comfortable with people who have different ways of knowing and thinking. How do we begin to start tapping into those spaces as, as well? Because we all have blinders and we need people that can give us different information that's not homogeneous so that we can begin to know of different tables and rooms to be in. So well put, I guess, similar question in when I imagine that type of sponsor, I'm imagining the veteran board member, community leader, retired executive, perhaps. Is that where you typically find sponsors? Or again, if I'm a young person new to my community, where do I find someone like what you've described? I think it's looking at, you know, like your chambers of commerce, your Kiwanis Club, your Optimist, your Lions Club. I think it, it, can it be the retired executive or the, those board members? Yes. But I think there are organizations that have people that, as I call myself, seasoned, but not, you know, on the (laughs) other end, we're we're a little bit more seasoned. You can find, you know, those individuals too. And there's some young people that I know here that are movers and shakers who have amazing networks that you can also connect to. So don't just think because it's age that that's going to be the only criteria. It's looking at the fruit that people have. It's like when you look at a tree, you want to make sure that you know, this is going to be a tree that lives, that it's viable, but it also is producing fruit. Look at the fruit that people produce and don't necessarily focus on these people with titles, but focus on what are they producing? Is it good? Is it sustainable? And people are constantly engaging them because they're doing good work. Those are the people that you want to go after as sponsors because they're in those spaces already and their names are being called out in rooms that you don't even know about. Those are the people you want to go after. Love the fact that you also mentioned the two-way street nature or the reciprocal nature of these relationships, right? I guess no matter where we are on the path, there's somebody ahead of me, but there's also somebody behind me that I could help. And it sounds like you have been intentional about looking in both directions. You have to be, because I think in this work, it, it bothers me when I see founders who have done this amazing work and then when they die or they get ill, that whole vision goes away. Yep. And the goal of what we should all be doing is building legacy. And legacy does not exist in books and, and manuals on shelves. That can be a piece of the legacy. The legacy is in the relationships that we build. And I often say to people, I've never been to a funeral where people talk about someone's job and their title. They talk about how that person made them feel and the investment that that person had in their life. We have to start thinking about this work and nonprofit management as legacy. What is it that we're doing to make it better for others to come behind us, but we're also making it better for our communities as well? And who are we bringing to the table? So it has to be a two-way street so that we are ensuring that the future is better because we took the time to build it. Eloquently put. Thank you for that. And I can't help but ask you, you're accomplished. You could rest on your laurels. I know you're not, and I know no. you won't. So I, as you think ahead, as an accomplished leader, uh, what's on the horizon? More books, perhaps? Or do you have other kind of short or long-term goals you're willing to share? Yeah, I am actually working on another book. Um, there was a publisher that I wanted 
years ago and presented something to them and they said no. Uh And I was doing this leadership circle for women of color and they saw it and they reached out to me and said, we want you to write something. And I was like, isn't that amazing (laughs) that if you just keep doing the work and that's what it taught me, just do the work. If you put your head down and do the work, people will recognize you. You don't have to go out and, and, and create banners of yourself and all those things, just do good work. And so they came and I am I'm writing a book on leadership for women of color, but it's from a faith-based perspective because I don't think, um, at least for, for me, that there are um, books that bring in data, that bring in faith, but also personal experience and a God. And so I'm hoping that this will help women in different industries, different ages, really think about their networks, to help them think about how they're negotiating and advocating for themselves. I'm hoping that this will be something that will serve as a catalyst for women to recognize, especially women of color, to recognize the gifts that they have and that if they create the relationships, they can also make sure they are creating opportunities for themselves and for others. And so I'm working on that and it should be out published in 25. So that's one of the things that that is taking up some of my time right now. That is fantastic. I'm glad I asked. I hope you will keep us posted as you progress through that yet another wonderful goal that is in fact going to help so many others. So Francois, that is certainly the the hallmark of your work and you've given us so much to take away, so many uh, ideas and, and pieces of advice. Any final thoughts uh, for someone listening right now, thinking about nonprofit leadership or wanting to advance further? Any final uh, uh, items that you would share? I would encourage you that two things. When you get a business card, don't wait a week. Within 24 hours, send a note and see if you can get a coffee with that person. Wow. And then be intentional about building your network that every month, you are saying there are two to three new people that I'm adding to my network. If you do that, can you imagine the number of people that you will have access to by the end of the year? So be intentional, put a plan behind it and watch your network grow. Wonderful. Practical advice. And you're exactly right. If I do that every, every week or every month, set some goals. Uh, you will indeed be connected in such a powerful way. So, Francois, thank you. We're going to lift up, of course, all of your books. Um, But I wonder, has there been a book that was meaningful to you on your journey that you would also recommend to our listeners? One of my favorite books is Building the Bridge as You Walk on It, because many of us in nonprofit management are actually doing just that. (laughs) That And that book was very helpful to me as I was building the bridge and trying to walk on it with a team. So that's one of my favorites of many. Can't wait to lift that up. And we will indeed put in the show notes so our listeners can find it and maybe more importantly, find you. So Francois, where would you like our listeners to go to learn more about you and the work you're doing? I am on LinkedIn. So please reach out on LinkedIn and I I respond and people can send me a note there and I will get you connected to my email and always glad to help and support folks. And I'm on Instagram, not as much as I'm on LinkedIn, but those two places you can find me. Fantastic. We'll make it easy. Go to the show notes. We'll have it all linked up and you will find even more resources that Francois and her team can provide. And for that, in all of this conversation, thanks Francois for joining me on the path. Patton, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Francois as much as I did. She provides us some practical advice as to how we can build social capital as nonprofit leaders ourselves, as well as help those of our colleagues that need to build their social capital and create positive change within their communities. Now, for more information about Francois and her work, including multiple publications, uh, check it out. Go to our new website. Again, it's the podcast page at pmanonprofit.com. And you can also go to the blog page and find out more about this episode and all of the resource material Francois and I discuss. And, of course, if you found this episode enlightening, please share it with one other person who is also on the path to nonprofit leadership. Grateful for your support, grateful that you're listening, and I hope you'll explore all of the resources that are available on our new website. One more time, pmanonprofit.com. Thank you, finally, for all of the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector and for all the causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content to help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.